Welcome, welcome to worship. Welcome to Schweitzer. We're so glad you're here today. I'm Jim and I'm the host. And wherever you're at today, we're glad you're here. Today, if you're a first time guest with us, especially glad you're here. Thanks for being here. We have a digital gift card for you. We'd love to send to you. So thanks for connecting with us and we'll send that out to you. Today, Pastor Spencer is gonna lead us in a message as we explore the scripture. The series is called Jesus is Greater. We're right in the middle of it. And Spencer is going to take us into the book of Colossians line by line. And we're going to know, know who Jesus is, which is Jesus is greater than anything and everything. God has a message for us all today. On October 24th, we're really excited about a unique experience we're going to have here on the Schweitzer campus. And it's called Songs from the Street, featuring the Springfield Street Choir. This really talented group, this inspiring group. We're gonna learn more about them. Of course, hear their singing and their stories. Also, we're asking for donations. Bring coats and hats, sleeping bags, as we'll provide those for clients that come through the pantry throughout the winter. So Songs from the Street, October 24th, be here for that. Also, I have some news. Our in-person modern worship has been filling up so quickly. We just began a couple weeks ago. It's filling up so quickly with social distancing guidelines, we're needing to move to the sanctuary. Moving to the sanctuary, October 18th, 1045, Modern Worship. Traditional stays the same at 9 a.m. on live worship. We love uh, worshiping with you. Thank you, you've been awesome. We appreciate you. If you haven't said hello to your online host, you can do that today. And there's also a, a prayer button if you'd like to receive prayer. And now let's begin to worship. We thank God for the opportunity to worship. We celebrate God, and now KJ's going to lead us in worship. Cause he's more than enough And you 
knows what I need So I'll give thanks to God When I don't have enough Cause he's more than enough And he knows what I need We thank God for prayer. Today, let's, uh, let's pray together. And this week, as we have in recent weeks in this series, Jesus is Greater, we've been reading prayers from the book that helps us shape this series and helps shape and inform our prayer life. And so this prayer today is called Hope in God. So as I read it, I invite you to listen and let these words just uh, soak them in. Soak these words in as I read this prayer, Hope in God. How, O oh Lord, can I have hope when this world is such an insecure place? Natural calamities destroy, economic uncertainties abound, human beings kill. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. What, O oh God, is reliable? What is secure? Not people, not institutions, not governments. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I fear, Lord, that evil, evil will win out in the end. I worry that my efforts will be for nothing. I feel overwhelmed by powers beyond my control. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and I am life. You alone, O oh Lord, are my hope. You alone are my safety. You alone are my strength. May I, even with my fears and anxieties, my insecurities and uncertainties swing like a needle to the pole star of the Spirit. Amen. As we continue in prayer together, God gives us hope and encourages our hearts. God is with us through everything. Jesus on the cross, even though he died, yet shall he lives. Jesus lives the living God. In this, we have hope that abounds God has given us hope, the ultimate hope, for every aspect of our lives. So let's thank God for the gift of hope, the victory that Jesus gives us in this life, in the eternal life. And let's, uh, let's just give our heart to God in this time of prayer. Holy God and kind, kind Father, we thank you for your spirit, your spirit that gives us hope in all circumstances. And God, how you encourage our hearts. You, you have experienced everything as you came for us. You know 
how challenging and tough this life can be. And God, on the cross, on the cross, everything changed. And everything in our lives can change and can be restored and can be made new because of you. Because God, you live. So we thank you. We thank you for the gift of each other, of how we can care for each other, love each other with your spirit. You are in us and us in you. Holy God. So Holy Spirit, come and fill our hearts. Encourage us this day. And God, uh, we love you and we praise you. And now let's pray together with boldness and confidence. The prayer the Lord taught us long ago and say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As we come to this time of offering, we thank God for all that God gives to us and how God provides for us. We thank you for your tithes and offering, your giving. You are generous people. This week we had an experience and event here called Diaper Dash, and it was fantastic. Your generosity in making this event happen, as well as all the diapers and more we received, wow, just, uh, it was awesome. And so now we're gonna hear from Sheila, who's gonna tell us more. We wanna thank all of you who came out to our Diaper Dash this past week. We had a great time playing with our church family and we collected over 12,000 diapers as well as monetary donations that will be used for diapers for our Schweitzer Food Pantry and for the Diaper Bank of the Ozarks. These diapers will help ensure these happier, healthier babies in our area. We wanna encourage you, if you're not worshiping in our area, to look up your area diaper bank and make donations to them as well. Thanks, Sheila. Thanks for your leadership. Thanks for making that experience happen. And congregation and everybody out there, it's because of your generosity, your giving, that an event like that, an experience like that can happen. You can continue to give at sumc.co, and we really appreciate it. Now let's continue to worship. Colette is going to lead us in another song. Let's worship.
We love stories, stories that change us and transform us, move us to places that otherwise we wouldn't be. And all year at Schweitzer, 52 weeks, we're telling God stories where God is interacting and transforming lives, changing people, restoring people. And so today we're gonna to hear from uh, Gordon Kenny. Gordon is a leader in our community and the church, longtime friend. So let's hear from Gordon and let's be inspired. We come to church regularly. I've been through four pastors, so those longtime members, you do the math. But um, probably about 35 years, I'd say, uh, maybe a little longer. It's when we moved to this side of town. I grew up a farm kid. Um, Hamilton, Missouri, we had multiple purpose. We had hogs, I've done it all. And uh, you know, I, our church was kind of depending on the weather. If the sun was shining in the summertime, we probably had hay down, we need to get it bailed or need to get a crop in or a crop harvested. So, but I went to a church, it was called a federated church and because they didn't have some multi-denominations, they made a multi-denominational church. But I always had church in my life. I went up and got baptized when my sister wanted did because she wanted to, but she wanted to go by herself. And so I don't think I really realized what it was till years later that I had accepted Christ and, and knew I had. I remember when I went to college, I totally fell away from the church except for two things. Uh, seems like I'd always find out when Billy Graham was gonna have a crusade on TV. The other place that I had touches of Christianity, believe it or not, was as a fraternity boy. And uh, we would do initiations a couple times a week and very Old Testament based. The ritual was really very strong Old Testament based and we always did it in a church. And back in those years, the church we did it in most of the time was a, a Presbyterian church. And interestingly enough, my little bride, Laura, uh, who will be 40 years this Valentine's Day and I got married in that same church 40 years ago this Valentine's Day here in Springfield. Talking about journey just beginning, it's uh, I think God's a tricky fellow because he kind of keeps us on this journey. We think we've got it figured out and something hits us. My biggest problem as a Christian has been I'm a control freak. And so my big, big problem is how do I turn it over? Whether it's losing a piece of business or you're in competition. Um, I do a lot of civic work. I don't like the split we have with you know, secular and Christianity. And uh, we as Christians have kind of allowed that to, uh, I think, occur uh, because we need to let people know an expression of faith is a normal thing. It should be an accepted thing like going and getting a Big Mac or a soda or anything else. And it should be part of life. It should be part of our dialogue, part of our communication. So my journey is just beginning because we are probably in the worst times in our country with communication and diversity and diversion and, and everything. And uh, it's a time for God. My name is Gordon Kenny, and this is just the beginning of my story. Well, friends, welcome this morning. My name is Spencer, and I, I just want to say thank you to Gordon for, for sharing his story with us. It's been so great to hear all of these stories as we've shared story after story over the course of the year about how God is at work in the people of Schweitzer. So enjoy this. Today, this is part four of our series we're on called Jesus is Greater. We're spending eight weeks reading the book of Colossians. It's four chapters. We're going eight weeks, going in this as deeply as we read this line by line as we discover eight ways that Jesus is greater, because that's really the theme of Colossians, that Jesus is greater. He's greater than anything and everything. And so every week we're reminded of another way that Jesus is greater than, than anything we might be tempted to put in front of him, which is why this is so helpful for us. And this is my hope as we go through this series is that we're going to be reminded and encouraged and challenged that, that we want to put him first and, and have him as first place in our life and not chase after anything else or put anything else in our life as first because, because anything we put before him is going to be inferior. So we are, we're reminded and we're looking at, at the greatness of Jesus. Today, we're gonna pick up right where we left off last week and, and these verses we're gonna read today, I mean, I just, I love these. I know they say that every week about these verses, but I love these verses we're gonna read here. Um, Colossians chapter two, verse six, we're gonna start there, right where we left off and here's how it goes. Paul writes, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, Continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Man, I love that line, overflowing with thankfulness, overflowing with thankfulness. Verse eight, 
See to it that no one takes you captive. We're going to talk about that word captive in a few moments here. No one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Now, whenever you're reading the Bible, especially letters of the Bible, like Colossians, it's a letter. So whenever you're reading these letters in the Bible, one of the most important questions you should ask yourself whenever you're reading is this, why? Why was this written? Why, why did Paul write this? Why, why is this being written? Because, because this is, is a letter and letters are written for reasons. And I don't know about you, but anytime I write a letter, actually, I don't really write letters, but anytime I send a text message, I don't normally just send a text message for no reason whatsoever with no context or no purpose behind it. There's like, there's usually something going on. And the same is true for these letters. There are things going on with these letters and why they're written. There's a reason why they write what they write. And, and, and we want to ask ourselves, you know, why? Why was this written? What's going on here? And as you start to ask that question, why, and you piece this together, some things become clear about what might be happening in the background of this letter. And so as you think about what we've read so far today, these, these two ideas held side by side, Paul starts off and he's like, continue to live your life in Christ, be rooted in Christ, be grounded to him, let him be the, the direction that you're going. And then, and then right after that, he's like, but don't be taken captive through hollow and philosophy and traditions. Don't, don't be taken captive with that. And as you start to piece those th- two things together, you see that, that there's something going on in this church, this Colossian church, that there's some sort of teaching maybe somewhere in this church where, where, uh, where folks are starting to be held captive by, by this philosophy, by this other teaching other than what Paul would have um, them learn. And that there, there's some sort of struggle in this church for this for this philosophy, this teaching that Paul is, is saying, hold, holding them captive. And as you dig a little bit deeper, it becomes even more clear what some of this hollow and deceptive philosophy is. Remember that the New Testament was written in Greek and not in English. And in, and in Greek, it becomes pretty clear as you, as you start to read through this. And in the Greek original of this, what's really fascinating is this word captive. Because in the original Greek, this word captive, uh, as Paul writes this, um, Paul's making a joke. And not, not like, a, like a funny joke, more like a dad joke. It's a pun. Paul's making a, a, a pun here because this word captive in the original Greek is this word. I'm going to read it slowly so, so that you can, you can hear it. But there's how it sounds in the original Greek. Sulagogon, sulagogon, which sounds remarkably similar to another Greek word, sunagage. Sulagogon, sunagage. These two words are, are meant to sound similar. And sunagage, this other word, is the Greek word for synagogue. Paul is making this point. Don't be held captive by the synagogue. It's a pun. It's a joke that he's trying to make here. And it's not like an anti-Semitic comment because what what really what Paul's referencing here is he's referencing like the controversy the first generation of Christians faced. Because the first generation of Christians were faced with this really pressing question, which was this. Do Christians need to practice circumcision? Like that was the controversy of the very first generation of Christians. Do Christians need to practice circumcision? The book of Galatians in the New Testament is really written all about that question. Acts chapter 15, a pivotal point in the church, um, is all about this question where leaders gather from all over these different cities and, and they talk about this for days on end to come to a conclusion about do, do Christians need to practice circumcision? And we hear that and we're like, well, that's weird. <laughs> that's the controversy of the first Christians is that they're wondering about if you need to be circumcised. Like that's the thing that people are fighting over. Oh, oh okay, have, have, go, go for it. But that's the controversy that these first Christians are fighting over. And, and really it's, it's deeper than that because really as they're, they're talking about this and, and fighting about this and arguing about this and wondering about do these Christians need to be circumcised, it's really about something uh, much deeper than that because we realize that you know, the first generation of Christians, basically all of them were Jewish. Paul was Jewish. Of course, Jesus is Jewish. They're all Jewish. And, and in the Jewish worldview, there's, there's really, in the first century, um, two kinds of people in the world. There are Jewish people and then not Jewish people. And they call them Gentiles. And, and the Jewish people, we, they kept themselves separate from everyone else. They, they would move into Greek cities like Colossae and they would keep separate from everybody else and, and they would have different dietary laws, they'd have different practices and they'd keep separate from everybody else and, and they did this because they were God's chosen people. They were the people of Abraham. They had the law and the covenants and, and they were the ones that God had given this all to and so they, they kept separate from, from everyone else because God's promises were for them as God's chosen people. But then some of these very first Jewish Christians started to experienced this resurrection of Jesus and they started to experience what it was that Jesus did and they thought about his message and his ministry, they, they began to realize that God's promises weren't just for the Jewish people. God's promises were for everybody. 
God's promises were for all of us, Jew and Gentile, for all of us. God's promises were for, for absolutely everybody because in Jesus, God had not just chosen one people, he's chosen everybody. And so these Jewish Christians began to, to go into these Greek speaking areas and they began to speak this good news message about Jesus. And, and as they do this, these other group of Christians are like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're circumcising them, right? They're obeying the Old Testament law, right? They're, they're keeping the Sabbath and the kosher laws and doing all these things, right? Because this is what it means to, to belong to God's people. And, and leaders like Paul were like, well, well, no, that's not our message. Because if that was our message that you needed to believe in Jesus and do these other things, then that would mean that Jesus isn't enough. But the message of the gospel, the good news is that what we need to do is just trust in him. And so this is Paul's message. And so as you keep reading through here, this is what he's gonna, he's gonna articulate. This is what he's gonna talk about is this good news message that this is for everybody. And, and what is required of us is that we trust in him. This is how Paul says it, verse nine. It says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness says he is the head over every power and authority. Colossians has this way of looking at Jesus in this like big picture view. This is who he is and this is what he does for you. That's kind of the, the idea of Colossians. This is who he is, this is what he does for you. Keeps going here in verse 11. It says, in him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. And so now he's diving right into this controversy of the first, the first generation of Christians. He says, your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the, from the dead. And so Paul's like, like, you can do all of the religious things you want. You, you can obey all of the laws. You can cross all the T's and dot all the I's and you can, you can do all of the religious things you want, but it's not, it's not enough. It's, it's not enough because, because it doesn't, this religious life, this religious obligation, these laws, they, they don't have the power to change your life. And so he's like, Jesus isn't gonna transform just like part of your life. He's gonna transform all of your life. He's gonna transform all of who you are. Paul keeps going here, verse 13, he says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. And you need to underline that in your Bibles. God made you alive with Christ. God made you alive with Christ. This is the gospel in six words. God made you alive with Christ, that Jesus' resurrection has been shared with you, that he has made you alive with him. This is, this is what he does. It goes on and says, he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross, which is, of course, a ridiculous thing to say, that Jesus has triumphed by the cross. Those are two words that should never really been said together, that the cross was Jesus' triumph, that the, there's victory through the cross. That, that makes very little sense. Now, of course, to us, we have a hard time understanding this because we have this way of, of uh, how we've kind of sanitized the cross. We've made it something that it's not. We've made it cleaner and, and, and easier to understand than, than maybe it was. We, we, we wear crosses like as jewelry, or some of us might have crosses in our homes or, or in our sanctuary. We have this cross behind me that's this beautiful hanging cross in our room that we look at and we sit and look at. But, but in reality, the cross was not a like pretty nice thing that you would ever want to wear. It was this, this gruesome this gruesome tool that the Romans used to execute people. And, and, and not just any people, this is the tool that the Romans used to, to execute the worst of the worst people. The cross was reserved for the worst criminals. There were all kinds of execution methods that the Romans had, but the cross was reserved for the worst of the worst. This is how you know who the bad guys are because they're nailed to crosses. And, and the Romans, they, they worked at making the cross extra gruesome and extra humiliating. And, and they made sure that it was visible so everyone could see it because the cross was such a terrible thing. They, they, would, they would put crosses outside the major cities by the, by the gates or, or outside the, the major roads that you'd have to walk by. Oftentimes the crosses were put on hills so that, so that people would have to see them as they walked down the road and be reminded of, of, of who the Romans are and how powerful the Romans are. And, and oftentimes the people would be executed on the cross, they'd be crucified, they'd be, they'd be crucified naked to add to the humiliation because that's what this is about is to make death as painful and as humiliating as 
possible and you die on the cross. You don't die by trauma or blood loss. You die because you suffocate as you slowly lose the power to, to raise yourself up, to breathe. Death on a cross is not quick. It's not easy. It's humiliating. It takes sometimes days to accomplish. And, and, and Paul's message here is that Jesus has somehow triumphed through this incredibly gruesome, humiliating thing, that this is the victory that he's given us. And, and, and this, is, this is how it happens. And, and these first Christians, they would go from city to city sharing this message of this triumph of Jesus through the cross. And, and, and as they go from city to city with this, with this message, people would hear this and be like, are, are you sure? The guy you claim who's the son of God was crucified? Are you are you sure about that? Because that, that doesn't make much sense that this is how God would save us. And what you're telling us is that all I need to do is trust in this person who is crucified. Like this, this wouldn't make sense to them. And yet this is Paul's message that, that there is victory in this, in this cross that, that he's given us. That in this cross there is this, this victory that comes to us. As Paul said in Colossians 2 verse 13, that God made us alive with Christ. That this happens because of this gruesome thing that Jesus has done is he shared his resurrection and his and his victory with us and and in those six words the this the six words of the gospel God made you alive with Christ we we see the genius of this of this way that God has saved us and the genius of this this argument that Paul has for us that that this victory that Jesus gives us is utterly different than anything else we could imagine and this is why this controversy started to arise because people looked at this cross, this gruesome, humiliating cross, and thought, surely I got to do something more than this. Surely I got to add to this. Surely this isn't enough, but this is the message of these Christians that God made you alive with Christ. This is what he does. And, and, and the genius of all of this is what Paul's giving us in these verses is essentially a roadmap. It's a roadmap between two options, two options of how to have a relationship with God, two options about how to approach your life, two options about, about how you're going to find um, healing and salvation and fulfillment in your life. And it's two options. One option is essentially this, that you receive the gift that God has given you, this gift of, of triumph that Jesus has, this victory that he has, the, the way that he makes us alive with Christ. Or we go down the path of, of religion and we think about what we have to do and all that we need to do and, and how we measure up and, and all the things that we add to this, which Paul says is the way of captivity. And, and really, essentially, we have this, this option here, this roadmap between these two options. So let me show you that what this looks like in, in real life. And, and let's look at this roadmap um, through the lens of, of one of Jesus' best friends named Peter. I think about Peter, Peter's story. Um, you remember how Jesus, had, right before the crucifixion, uh, Jesus shared uh, a last supper with his disciples. We're going to celebrate communion in a few moments here, but Jesus celebrated a last supper with his disciples. And in this last supper, uh, Jesus talked about how uh, in just the, his, his death was coming and Jesus talked about this crucifixion that was going to take place. And, all of, and one of the things Jesus said was that all of his disciples were going to betray him. All of his disciples were going to turn their back and run on him. But Peter, being Peter, Peter stands up and said, no, 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 no not me, not me. I, they may all run. They're, they're all cowards, but not me. I'm with you, Jesus, till death. I'm with you. I'm going to stand with you no matter what. I am with you, Jesus. That's what Peter says. And, 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 and Jesus looks at Peter and is like, no, not, not this time. Not this time. You're, you're going to betray me too. And, and of course, Peter's like, no, Jesus, you're, we're your best friend. I'm, I'm, with you to, I'm with you to the end. And right after the this, this supper, the disciples, they go to this park and Jesus goes to pray. And while they're at this park, this mob comes with torches and soldiers and they arrest Jesus and all of the disciples flee except for one, Peter. Peter stays and for whatever reason, he follows Jesus as he's arrested. He follows Jesus into the courtyard and, and he kind of stays on the outside of the courtyard and Jesus is taken into the courtyard and, and, and Peter stays by this fire, warming his hands by this fire. And people start to ask Peter these questions. They start to ask G Peter, they said, you, you know him, right? And Peter says, no, 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 I don't. I, I don't know him. And someone else says, no, you look familiar. You look like you were with him a few days ago. And he goes, no, seriously, I, I've never met this man before. And then, and then someone else, someone else looks, at, looks at Peter and is like, but, but your accent, your accent, you sound like you're from Galilee. Surely, surely, surely you were with, with Jesus. And Peter's like, no, I don't know the man. I don't know who you're talking about. And right as this happens, um, Luke tells us that Jesus turns and looks at Peter and says this. Luke 22 says, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then listen to what Peter does. Verse 62 says, he went outside and wept bitterly. Like we all have these stories where we did that thing we wish we hadn't done. We said those words we wish we hadn't said. We, we neglected that relationship or treated that person the way we wish we hadn't done. And, 
And uh, we, we, we have this word for that, and we, we call it regret. Like, this is the regret of Peter's life. This is the regret of his life, that, that he now, um, as he said he was going to stand with Jesus and whatever he thought he was going to do as a fisherman facing these Roman soldiers, he has this regret that he has failed his best friend when his best friend needed him the most. And now, in the moment of this regret, Peter has to watch as his best friend is beaten senseless. He has to watch as his best friend is mocked relentlessly. He has to watch as his best friend is forced to carry this cross up this hill. He has to watch as his best friend is nailed to these beams. He has to watch as his best friend slowly suffocates to death. And all the while, I imagine Peter is asking this question, well, like, what if? What if I had done that differently? What if I had done this differently? What if I had spoken up then? Could I have prevented this? What, what if? Now, now imagine that you're one of Peter's friends and Peter shows up that night and he's crestfallen. He, he's, he's beating himself up. And I, I wonder, what would you have told Peter that night? What, what kind of advice might you have given him? You, you might've said something like this, Peter, you, you can't be so hard on yourself. You can't be so hard on yourself. Peter, you got to realize that Jesus knew what he was doing. You, you, you can't be so hard on yourself. You might say like this, you might say, Peter, you know, it's not your fault. There was all these people at work. There's nothing you could have done. It's not your fault. You, you need to realize that it's not your fault. Whatever happened, it's not your fault. Or you might have said this, you might have said, Peter, you, you've got to forgive yourself. You've got to forgive yourself. You, you know, you couldn't have done anything. You've got to forgive yourself. You've got to let go of this. And all of that's the kind of advice that we give people who maybe are in those circumstances, have that kind of regret and are living in the past and, and, and they're living with those, with those demons that are still talking to them. That's the kind of advice we give. And, and all of that advice, if you, if you think about it, all of that advice is, is really the way of captivity. Because, because that advice is all rooted in what do I need to do in order to to feel better? What do I need to do to get over this? What do I need to do to make this right? What do I need to do for, for this or for that to happen? And, and Peter needs something more than that. He needs something more than just a lesson on what he needs to do to get over this. And so we know the story, of course. We know that Jesus' dead body was put in the tomb and on Sunday morning as the women go to the tomb that it's empty, that Jesus is alive. And in the Gospel of Mark, this really interesting thing happens as the women show up at the tomb. Because in the Gospel of Mark, this is the only place this says this. But I want to read to you what the angel says to the women at the tomb as they discover that it's empty. They say this. This is Mark 16. They say, the angel says, Don't be alarmed, he said. This is the angel speaking. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where he lay laid him. And then listen to verse 7. It says, But go. Tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, a lot of people believe that Mark, who we just read this from, got his source material from Peter. Meaning that as Peter is remembering the story of how this happened and he tells it to Mark, this is how he remembers it. Because you see, for Peter, something happened that made all of the regret irrelevant. Something happened that changed what was into this new future of what is. Something happened, this, this thing happened that's bigger than just get over it or forgive yourself or let something go. Something happened that made all of that regret and guilt and shame 100% irrelevant. And that something, of course, is resurrection. Peter has a choice. Does he hold on to what was? Does he hold on to what happened? Does he hold on to what used to be? Or does he live into what is? Does he live into this new reality? Not what could be or what might be, but what Jesus has already accomplished for him. This is how Paul says it, Colossians 2, the gospel in six words. God made you alive with Christ. Not, not he might, not maybe someday, but this is what's already happened because of the resurrection, that Jesus has already made you alive. And, and so you have a choice. Do you live into what is or do you keep holding on to what was? God has already done this with you and he shared with you this victory, this triumph that is Jesus' resurrection. In another place, Romans chapter 6, Paul says a similar idea and he says it like this. He says, could it be any clearer? Our old way of life was nailed to the cross with Christ. A decisive end to that sin-miserable life. No longer it sends every beck and call. What we believe is this. If we get included in Christ's sin-conquering death, 
we also get included in his life-saving resurrection. You see, friends, Jesus is greater because he has triumphed. Jesus is greater because he is victorious. Jesus is greater because he was dead, placed in the tomb, and now he is alive. And let me tell you the good news. He wants to share his life, his victory, his triumph with you. He wants to make you alive with him. This is the good news message that God made you alive with Christ. And all he wants you to do is to receive it. And so this morning, we're gonna do that sort of thing. We're gonna celebrate this life that Jesus has given to us as we celebrate a meal that he shared with his disciples and as he shared with us, which is all about how we receive this life-giving, triumph, victorious life that we find in Jesus, that he is alive. Because in the night that Jesus shared that supper with his disciples, we remember that he took bread and he broke the bread and he said for his disciples, that his body would be broken in the same way as this bread. His body would be beaten, he would be crucified, that he would die on behalf of them. In the same way, he took a cup of, of, of wine, he gave it to his disciples, and he said to his disciples to drink from this, all of you. And he, and he called this a new covenant, a covenant for the forgiveness of sins, that this is what he's given for them. He's not asking them to do anything. He's not asking them to create anything. He's not asking them to, to, to be good enough or anything like that. He's just simply wanting to them to receive his life that he has for them. This is the message of the gospel that he is giving to you, the good news that he has made you alive in Christ. Let's pray over this and then together in our living rooms, wherever you might be, we're gonna share together in this supper that he's given to us. And so Lord, today, would you pour out your Holy Spirit on us as we're gathered across the area, across cities and states, wherever we might be today, that we ask that you might pour out your Holy Spirit on us and pour out your Holy Spirit on these gifts of bread and of wine. And would you make them be for us the body and the blood of Christ, that we might be for the world, the body of Christ who's been redeemed by your blood. Would you make us one with Christ and one with each other and one in ministry to all the world until you come in your final victory and we feast at your heavenly banquet. All honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, both now and forever. Amen. And so friends, wherever you may be today, I invite you to take bread, to break bread, to eat the bread, and to remember how Jesus' body was broken for you. In the same way, I invite you to take a cup of wine or juice and, and to take this cup and to drink from the cup and to remember his blood that was shed for you that you might have life in him. Because the gospel message is simple, that he has made you alive with Christ. Savior, I'm your 
lives forever Jesus Christ my living hope Hallelujah Praise the Word who set me free Hallelujah Death has lost its grip on me Friends, it's been great to share this time with you. And I want to say thank you to all of the leaders who helped make these kinds of services possible. From Pastor Jim, our modern worship leader, KJ, uh, Colette Freeman, as she led today as well. People behind the scenes, there's so many people involved in these worship services. And as we celebrate today uh, the good news message that God has made you alive with Christ, if this has been helpful for you, I encourage you to share this on Facebook, interact with it on Facebook. This is one of the best ways that we can share this message is through social media. And so I, I want to encourage you to post something positive today. And one of the ways you can do that is by sharing this service in some way in your feed. And so have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.